Good morning. My name is Casey Nixon, and I'm excited to be with you guys today. I appreciate you having me back. Uh, Rick couldn't be here. He's doing a wedding for a, a person in the church in Louisiana. So he called and said, hey, I'm in kind of a bind. Would you help me out? And I said, well, you've clearly gone down the list. I appreciate it. I'm at least on the list. I'll help you out for friends. And uh, he said, okay, it's, uh, it's Sunday. I said, yes, it's always Sunday, Rick. And he said, no, no, it's this Sunday. I said, okay, no problem. So what we're going to have to do, because uh, I've got nothing for you, is we're going to have to rely on Jesus to show up and give you what he wants for you today. Are you okay with that? All right, very good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together, Lord. Thank you that we can still gather in the open, Lord. Uh, time might be coming when that's not true. Father, let us take today, take advantage of the fact that we can worship together corporately, Lord. I just pray that you'll remove our distractions, that you'll make more of your word, Lord, and less of mine. Let me shrink away, shine bright in this place. Be to everyone here all the things we wrote on this sign, Lord. Let it be true today in all of our lives. For your glory, we ask these things. Amen. So the year was 1918. A man by the name of Elsie Seeger sent away for a correspondence kit to learn how to draw. By 1919, he had created a lovable crew of, of flawed but uh, lovable characters from the venerable cast he knew around town in his hometown of Chester, Illinois. None more lovable than the character he created based on Frank Fiegel. Now, Frank was a one-eyed barroom brawler who never turned down a fight. Like the cartoon character, Frank had the same chiseled chin and built frame and corncob pipe. But Frank was more likely to turn to a, a couple of shots of bourbon than to open a can of spinach for his super fighting prowess. That's right, but the character introduced in 1929 in the comic strip that would eventually bear his name introduced us to the protector of the weak, the spinach-eating, corncob-pipe-smoking brawler Popeye. And he had a famous line. Do you know what the famous line was? I am what I am, and that's all that I am. Now, Popeye wasn't claiming to be God. Popeye was just a man who knew who he was, and he knew who he wasn't. A man without pretense. And while the uh, caricature of Popeye was based on the visage of Frank Fiegel, his iconic line came from somewhere else. So when you open the New Testament, about halfway through the Bible, we get to the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, often called the synoptic Gospels, are a summation of the facts of Jesus' life. And they're like a, a recounting of three men, each standing on a corner, watching the events unfold from the outside looking in. But the book of John is decidedly different. The tone and timbre of the book of John reads as if uh, it's from the inside looking out. Now, Eusebius was a third century Jewish historian. He wrote a very, very famous book about the history of the early church, and he quoted a man named Clement. And Clement was a church father from the second century, only about two, maybe three generations removed from Jesus. 
pretty reliable source. And this is what Eusebius read. Let's turn this baby on. He said, but last of all, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain in the Gospels, being urged by his friends and inspired by the Spirit, composed a spiritual gospel. This is the accounts of Clement. So he said, John composed a spiritual gospel. John doesn't read like Matthew, Mark, and Luke with a lot of facts. In fact, John has several very unique qualities as he tries to give those facts meaning. Now, we could talk all day about who John is and why the book of John is so special. It's probably one of my favorites. Rick and I were talking for a long time about it. I love the book of John. And John includes uh, a couple of unique features. And one of them is the seven I am statements in the book of John. So if you've been in church a little while, you're familiar with the I am statements, right? And you know that Jesus was uh, essentially claiming to be God. And that was a problem in his day and age in the church. We're going to talk more about it because Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats from me will never hunger. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. The sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, right? You know those. I am the true vine and you are the branches. Remain in me and I remain in you. Part me, you, you can do nothing, but when I remain in you, you can bear much fruit, right? You know all those statements, and everybody's familiar with those statements, being Jesus' reference to being God. But I think that those aren't really the crux of the issue. When you read in John, you get um, some glimpses into Jesus sparring with a group called the Pharisees. Now, most of you probably know the Pharisees are the ruling Jewish class, right? They're like the political and religious figures. They're kind of like Congress and the Pope all rolled into one. So they are in Jewish society. They're everything. They are all honor and wisdom and preference, and they are just the people, okay? At least they think they are. And so all of these things would have offended them, but they were veiled. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But Jesus often said things that, that if you knew, you knew, and if you didn't, you could kind of blow it off. Okay? But in John 8, 58, Jesus tells him something that's a mic drop. He goes, before Abraham was, I am. Now we're going to look at this whole statement but this is the I am that sealed his fate. This is the I am that pushed them over the edge. This is where he left no doubt that he was claiming to be God. Okay? Now, to understand this, we have to go back a little bit. So remember, uh, we've talked before, the, the Bible's not a, a, a line. It's not a linear walk through history from the beginning to the end. It's really more like a circle. Think of it like a bicycle wheel. Jesus is the hub in the middle. We see the timeline go all the way around. It starts with the beginning of all things. It comes back around to the end and recreation of all things. Everything that happens in that timeline spokes into Jesus, and everything goes from Jesus out into the timeline. Can you see that? So it's very important that you understand that because it's important that we understand the whole book goes together. We're not just walking away from one part into another. It's all connected and it's all centered on Jesus. All right? Everybody good with that? So to understand these statements, we have to go back 
to the Old Testament. In fact, we have to go back almost to the beginning. We have to go back to Moses. And you know this story because it's a famous children's story. So anybody who's been through church knows the story of Moses and the burning bush. Right? Moses is a shepherd. He's a lot of things, but at this point in his life, he's a shepherd, he's in Midian, he's tending some sheep, and he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. Intrigued, he approaches the bush and finds out that it's holy ground. It's the voice of God, and here's what the voice says to him. God says, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name... What shall I say to them? Now, there's another part you have to understand to get a complete picture. In Hebrew, in Greek, in most of the Near East ancient world, there's a belief that if you don't know the word for a thing, you don't really know the thing. That the word encompasses the meaning of the thing. It's why names are so important in the Bible. Have you ever noticed when people have a God encounter in the Bible, they oftentimes get a new name because the name encompasses the meaning, the essence of the person. So when Moses says, who do I say sent me? What is your name? God could have responded with Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Now, a good Jew would never say that name. They are so reverent of the name of God, they would not say that. But he could have responded that way, but he didn't. Here's how he responded. He said, what do I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's right. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. He says, my name doesn't even encompass all that I am. I am the essence and logic and reason of everything. I am beyond words. That's what he tells Moses. You just tell him, I am. Whatever, you th whatever it is, I am. Okay, now hold that thought. Now Jews know this. This has been taught in the synagogue. It's been taught in school. Any good Jew would know all these stories backwards and forwards. They would understand their meaning very, very well. Because now you get to the New Testament. You get to the beginning of John, and how does John start his great book? In John 1, 1, he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was light, and light was the life and the light of men. Pardon me. So, John begins with, in the beginning was the word. Now, you have to understand a little bit of Greek to understand that the word here, a lot of you already know this, is the logos, right? Or logos. And logos is the Greek concept for the essence, the order, the logic, the reasoning that underpins everything. That's the concept of the logos or the logos. And so John says, in the beginning was the logos, the logic, the order, the essence, the reasoning of everything. And that logic and order and essence and reason was with God and it was God. Now we know that because science has started to reveal to us things in our modern world like molecules and DNA and the fact that nothing exists 
in nature in a state of chaos. Everything that was created by God was created with logic and order and reason. It has his fingerprints on everything because that's how he designed it. And he designed it doing what? Speaking. He brought everything into being by speaking it into being, right? It wasn't done by the power of his authority or the power invested in the word. It was done by the word itself. He literally spoke it into being and the power of the words created things from nothing. And that's what John tells us. That that word was God and it was with God and it's Jesus. That's how John begins his book. He ties the idea of I am to the logos, the similar concept in Greek, and then he begins to give meaning to the facts of Jesus' life as he walks through the chapters in the book of John. All right? So when we get to verse, chapter 8, excuse me, verse 51, we're going to see this starts to come into play because Jesus is having a heated discussion with a group of Pharisees. So the Pharisees don't like Jesus. Most of us already know that. There's a lot of uh, arguing, but this particular conversation is very contentious, okay? So we move forward to uh, John 8, 51. If you want to follow along, I've got it on the screen, but in your Bible, it's John 8, 51. And Jesus, arguing with the Pharisees, uh, says this, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. You say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If, you were to, if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And this is the crux of the matter. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So in this uh, interaction with the Pharisees, what we see is, is they say, well, surely you have a demon. And Jesus says, I don't. In fact, I don't even seek my glory. My father seeks my glory because I know him and I keep his word. If you knew him, truly knew him, you would keep your word. And you see that the Pharisees are definitely thinking temporal, right? They're saying, well, how could you not die? How could you have seen Abraham? None of these things make sense. They're, they're thinking temporal. And Jesus is thinking spiritual, right? These are the guys who claim to be so in tune with God, but all they're concerned with is what's in front of them. And Jesus is trying to open their eyes to what's beyond them, and they can't see it. And so here they are arguing with him, and they say, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? 
Now, it's curious that they stop at Abraham because if you look at the Pharisees, everything they believe, everything that creates identity for them comes from Abraham. It doesn't come from God. It comes from Abraham. Kind of interesting. Abraham is the point. Everything falls out from there. Okay? Because they take Abraham to be the father of the covenant, and then we have Jacob, and we have Isaac, and we have Moses, and we have David, and we have these other points along the path. But all of that fulfills this covenant and gives them identity to who they are. That's why Jesus has chosen Abraham as his point. And he says, Abraham rejoiced at seeing my day. Now, they can't think past the temporal. They can't think past the here and now. They say, how would you know? How could you possibly have seen Abraham? And how could he have possibly seen you? It makes no sense. But Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Before your identity, before your religion, before all of your rules, before all of the things that you think matters, I am. And that word before, if you look at it in the Greek, it's not simply before in time, chronologically before, although it is true chronologically. What he's saying is, I'm greater than that. What you ascribe to Abraham, what falls out of Abraham in your mind, in your identity, what you bring from Abraham down and rest on, I am greater than that. That's what he told them. And they were mad because they didn't get it. They were looking around. They couldn't see the spiritual connection that Jesus was trying to open their eyes to. And I think we run a risk of that today. Sometimes we do the same thing. There's a greater spiritual truth and we miss it because we just can't see past ourselves. It reminded me of uh, Matthew's words. Matthew recorded this conversation with Jesus uh, in Matthew 13. He said, this is why, this is Jesus speaking. He said, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. That's Isaiah 6, 9. And Jesus goes on, he says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. If they would just open their eyes, if they would just open their ears, if they would just open their heart to hear what I'm telling them, I would heal them. But they won't. That was the Pharisees' great problem. But they won't. They wouldn't pay the cost. They wouldn't give up the things that they were banking on in this life, their power, their prestige, their place of honor. They weren't going to give that up even for God. They heard but they didn't hear. They saw, but they didn't see. They didn't understand in their heart, and they refused to turn to God. 
They refused to be healed. That was their great problem. And so we're left today to kind of uh, muse about this and say, well, how, do I, how does this apply to me? How do I fit in here? How do I look like the Pharisees? Is there something in my life that's preventing me from really hearing God's message to me? Is there something in my life that's preventing me from seeing God at work all around me? Is there something in my heart that's preventing me from accepting the love of Jesus? Because Jesus told the Pharisees in his exchange in John 8 that he was God. He made no qualms about it. He didn't disguise it from them. He told them in a way that they clearly understood. Not metaphorically, not hyperbolically, but in a very clear, compelling way, Jesus said, I am. I am. Before Abraham, before all that you think creates our culture and our identity and our religion and our rules, before all of that, I am. And they were furious. Their hearts were hardened. They turned on him. In fact, they wanted to kill him. They were so angry in their heart, these men who said they loved God wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus told them there's a new way. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? So as we think about that today, it's kind of interesting Jesus is God. Now, I notice that's actually missing on our board. We have Jesus as the Son of God, which is about as close as we get. Jesus is all of these amazing things, but don't miss that Jesus is God, and Jesus wants to have a relationship with each of us. The God of the universe, the God who spoke everything into being, the Logos wants to have a relationship with us. So much so that he made the ultimate sacrifice to make a way. Because Jesus is God. And the truth of the matter is we can have as much Jesus as we want. But he's a gentleman. He'll never force himself on us. He'll stand patiently in the corner and he'll wait. But if you don't invite him in, if you don't spend time with him, if you don't give him your attention and your love, he won't demand it. He won't take it from you. But you can have as much God through Jesus as you want. Any limitation we have is a limitation we bring on ourselves. So what is it in our life that limits our Jesus? Is it the time we spend on the internet? Is it the time we spend watching TV? Is it social media? What's competing for that place in our heart, that place on our calendar, that place in our mind? What's competing with Jesus? Because he'll give you all that you want if you'll chase after it. It's not hard to find. He doesn't hide it from us. 
He's not waiting for you to figure out some secret code. It's not an escape room where we're stuck until we figure out how to get out. It's right there, patiently waiting for each of us, just like it was on that fateful day in the temple grounds when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he laid it out for them as plain as day, but seeing they didn't see, and hearing they didn't hear, and they didn't understand in their heart. They couldn't get past themselves to get to Jesus, to really get to God. It's kind of sad, isn't it? C.S. Lewis, I think, left us with an amazing quote. Some of you probably know this. It's a very famous passage uh, in the book, Mere Christianity. And I'll just set it up to help you understand if you don't know uh, much about C.S. Lewis, though most Christians do. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in the 40s, kind of World War II time, a little bit before. Uh, He was a scholar, an Oxford-educated scholar. He was a thinker. And he actually set out to disprove Christianity. He set out with a goal to show how logically Christianity made no sense. And he became a staunch believer. He looked at the facts in an attempt to discredit them, and he couldn't. And he became a believer, an advocate of the faith. Uh, He was an Anglican parishioner, uh, but a, a real lover, follower of Jesus. And so he wrote Mere Christianity as his effort to disprove Christianity. And by about chapter 2, he was pretty well certain that there was something to it all. And by the end of the book, you realize he's become a full-fledged believer. And he leaves this passage in there. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. I think it sums up what happens in John 8 so well. You have to do something with the fact that Jesus says, I am. I am. I am God. What do you do with that? That's where he leaves it. He didn't intend to give us an opportunity to have sort of a cop-out, some sort of middle ground about he was a prophet or a great person or a good moral teacher. He didn't leave that up to us. He said, I am I am who I am. What are you going to do about that? In the coming weeks, I know Taryn wants to talk about Jesus is Lord and what that means. And I think it's a great follow-up to Jesus is God. Because that's where it all lies. Jesus is the great I am. He said it himself. Don't take my word for it. It's right here. 
right here. If you don't know where to start, start in the book of John. The book of John explains the facts of Jesus' life and gives them meaning. And he wants something from you. That's a relationship. And you can have all of him that you want. Will you pray with me?